Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicky. And I'm Janelle. And we're back again with another episode. This week, it's a special episode. Surprise! Because it's a special day. Yes. It is our... Gift to you. Gift to you. <laughs> it is our <laughs> gift to you and to ourselves. Because... Yes. <laughs> Your homegirl just started a new job. Happy anniversary. And I got a, I had no Congratulations. time, but also anniversary. Thank <laughs> I you. I told you I was going to do the song. <laughs> oh, I didn't. Did you? Yeah. Oh, when we I recorded did. last. I was like, I'm going to do the Chili's anniversary song. <laughs> I don't remember that. It's fine. Should we do it? It was ages ago. <laughs> happy, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Yes. Yay. It is our five year anniversary, yes. right? Why do you sound so confused every time you do it? Because it sounds like How many years it's been? been so long. Like, yeah. It doesn't, it seems like it, but it doesn't. Yeah. Still the longest commitment in my life. Um, I mean, it's about the second longest commitment of my life. <laughs> um yeah so we have been podcasting for five years bringing you um tales of true crime and misery yes heavy on the misery (laughs) yes um it is the wood anniversary yes we received (laughs) our wooden um, gifts does this make a noise from our sound i don't know it's a great noise get close on the mic on that one i don't even know that you could you could um Tell what that is. They're like little wooden canisters we got from yes. Tiff, our sound producer. In true fashion, our studio cat has now come in and is saying hello to wish us happy anniversary. Yes. But we wanted to bring you something a little special. So yes, and also congratulations, Vicky. I buried the lead when you're like, I got a new job, and I'm like, anniversary? No, no, it's okay. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm saying, where's your applause? Oh. We need applause. Oh no, yeah, applause button. Wait. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is the. It goes on for kind of a long Yeah, time. it's a really long, um, long one. <laughs> yeah, so I recently got a new job, which has kept me quite busy. Yes. Um, but we did have time to do a live show. If you listen to any of our more recent episodes, we've talked about this a little bit. Um, we did a live show with uh, the Dark Matters Podcast Festival. Yes. Dark Matters Festival mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, with Side Street Studio Arts and Ghostly Podcast. Oh, my gosh. What a fun time. Yes. Lots of fun. Yeah. Exciting. I've been telling people this is like my favorite live show that we've done in a long time. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) It really, I was just like really into the topic we were covering. Um, Just felt like, like the story that I had, I was just like really into it, you know? Mm -hmm. It was just all around a good time. Yeah. And I always feel like when we um, do events like this, where it's like 
centered around one theme, which in this case, Dark Matters, it was very like spooky stuff. It always feels like, okay, I'm at home. I'm with my people. <laughs> um, so not only were we there, Ghostly was there. Um, they had a lot of paranormal investigators. Mm-hmm. There's some folks doing like tarot card readings, yes. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a paranormal investigation later on in the evening. Yeah. Um, and they did a panel with all of the mm-hmm. uh, presenters. And so we were able to participate in the panel. That's unfortunately not recorded. Mm-hmm. You had to be there. But it was really fun, yeah, too. Yeah, you had to be there. <laughs> you had to be I there. I almost wasn't there the whole time. <laughs> Janelle caught the end of it. <laughs> I missed no. the good parts, though, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got a message from Janelle a few days later. I was like, what did you even say at this thing? <laughs> um, no, it was really fun because we don't get to do those things very often either. So instead of our regular episode this week, we wanted to bring you the live show from the Dark Matters Festival. Special treats for our special friends. Yes. (laughs) Um, So before we peace out for (laughs) the rest of the recording um, and you get past Vicky and Janelle, um, Mm -hmm. we just want to say, I guess, thank you to you guys for um, keep keep coming back for tales and if it wasn't for you, you guys, we wouldn't even be here. Yeah, I can't. I, you know, listen, I have been way too emotional this week. I can cry <laughs> on the podcast. I'm not going to do that to myself. It's fine. I just um, got my voice back, so I need to yell. <laughs> yeah. But really, like, Janelle, I love making this podcast with you. Oh, my God, Becky. I thought you said we weren't going to cry. <laughs> yeah. No, it really, it has been so fun. I just, you know, the fact that we still enjoy doing this mm-hmm. i think says a lot that yeah. we don't hate it you know yeah definitely um haven't really had any burnout on it we've been doing this no. every two weeks yeah for it's five years it's interesting there's not a lot of podcasts that don't take long breaks <laughs> yeah and we definitely don't and i i do i mean obviously we sort of planned it that way with our recording schedule but like yeah. We really don't. We just keep going and going and, yeah. and going. So Yeah, there are a lot of people who get into this who want to make it their career, and that's great, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work, and I don't know. I feel like we've done just enough and just the right way to make it still enjoyable yeah. and not like a job. Yeah, and we still like each other as far yeah, as we know. Yeah, somehow no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So with that, we'll say – uh. Happy five-year anniversary to all of our listeners, and enjoy the episode. Enjoy. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We are all involved in some form or another. (laughs) 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 It's the living you're going to worry about. Well, hello, and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicki. And I am Janelle. And we are here to talk about some true crime this week, some very bloody crime. Yes. We we kind of saw the like roster of everybody who's going to be here this weekend and noticed that we were the only true crime podcast on the docket, although I heard last night there was some true crime also. That's our territory. <laughs> <laughs> Meet us outside after. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> there's about to yeah. be another true crime. <laughs> so we were like, okay, we really got to bring it, yeah, tonight. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
Before we get started, we want to tell you guys a little bit about ourselves. Um, we started this podcast about five years ago. Uh, Our anniversary is in two weeks. No big deal. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> I, knew it was always forget. I knew it was coming up. I don't know when it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Janelle and I actually went to high school together a long time ago. and <laughs> Don't remind me. <laughs> met up again. Working. Both found a love for uh, true crime. We used to get yelled at for talking about murder too much at work yeah the cubicles aren't soundproof <laughs> people don't appreciate that apparently i mean half of our staff appreciate it yeah and decided uh to make a podcast and yeah. so we're still doing it we still like each other uh kind of <laughs> most <I think>. days <laughs> yeah um so we will typically choose a theme for the show and then janelle and i will both bring a case we don't know what the other is covering um we know enough to not do the same things but that's about it Mm -hmm. so this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners or in this case all viewers we are going to be talking about um instances of murder child death suicide um I don't, that pretty that's, much covers that sounds it. Sounds like all yours. <laughs> that's probably all mine, but that, that pretty much covers it. So, Janelle. Yes, Vicky. What are we talking about today? I thought since it's February and it's the month of love that we could tell some tales about some very dumb and very intense lover, murderer, killer situations. Some killer couples. Some killer couples. Mm. Doing it in, living in sin, in all of the ways conceivable. (laughs) So for my tale, we're going to go back in time, because that's what I do all the time. (laughs) If you didn't notice, mine are always very historical. You might have to tell me when to hit the thing. Oh, you can hit the thing. Hit the thing. (laughs) And my case is going to cover some teenage lovers. Do you remember being a teenager? Can I just... I So we're in an audio format Uh um, for for people listening... uh, we have a, a slide with lots of little hearts. And two, I like the hearts. The hearts Thank are a nice I went nice full touch. scrapbook mode yes. for this one. Yes. Um, <laughs> so when you're a teenager, you got lots of hormones going on. And you do crazy things. You do dumb things. Yes. I know I definitely endangered my life several times. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> we have talked about this on the show before. But there are a lot of things that I think back on that I'm like, wow, it was really fucking stupid. I shouldn't be alive right now. That was pretty dumb. (laughs) Yeah, but like the biggest uh, disappointment is teenage love. Mm. (laughs) Because it's just a recipe for disaster all around. Mm. But it's worse when you add some adolescent hormones, love, and sadism into it. Uh, So we're going to talk about a truly awful couple. Um, We're going to talk about the rampage of Carol Ann Fugate and Charles Starkweather. Okay. Now, when I was reading this, it took me everything in me not to say her name like the lady from Poltergeist, Caroline. Um, <laughs> so just remember that uh, every time I say that, <laughs> it's in your bank. Maybe all I can think about now. Yes. Uh, so it was the 1950s when this happened. Very rebel without a cause times, and unfortunately, it was Nebraska. <laughs> So not a whole lot of excitement going on, as you can see from this amazing map. Lots of birds. I see birds of wheat and corn. Oh, wheat. I'm sorry, wheat. Not wait. Nebraska's corn. Nebraska has wheat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So not a whole lot of people per capita. Um, (laughs) So not a lot of excitement. And the only things really coming out of Nebraska at this time were steaks and fun fact, Kool-Aid. Really? Yeah. Major export of Nebraska. Okay. (laughs) So Charles Starkweather um, was one of seven kids. And because there were so many damn kids, Charlie kind of fell through the cracks he sucked at school and did not want to be there, and he was really into James Dean. So, as you can tell, he was I feel like very I, rebel. I got that vibe from mm-hmm. that first picture with like the rolled up sleeves and kind yes. of the, the hair, the mm-hmm. hair. So, he was not only just really terrible at school, he also just had a bad time overall. He was a little bit of a dork. Uh, And he had a speech impediment and also had trouble uh, walking. So teenagers being teenagers were straight up dicks and bullied him incessantly. Oh, God. So this could this could shape a person in a couple different ways. This Uh, is when you tell these parts of the story, it's like red flag, red flag, red flag. So instead of making him like a stronger individual, he leaned into the rage. And uh, the first place he took it out was in gym class. Okay. Lots of pump and iron, lots of rage-filled dodgeball. I was going to say dodgeball. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the thing is, though, he couldn't stop the rage. It poured out of gym class, and he started going off the handle. And he was so angry and angsty that his parents became afraid of him. Oh, okay. So he went to the theater. He saw a fun movie. Rebel Without a Cause. And he decided he was going to go full-blown James Dean. Vicky, have you seen that movie? No. It doesn't end well. Oh. (laughs) Does he murder people? Not in the movie necessarily. Okay. (laughs) But definitely does not end well. Foreshadowing. Carol Ann, on the other hand, was a young gal of 13, barely a teenager, um, really gave me vibes of like, I don't know, kind of like school hop, sort of high ponytail action, very like flirty, and I'm 13. Okay. Um, And in typical teenager fashion, her sister was dating this guy. And Bob was like, hey, I got this friend, and you should like really meet him. And this guy's name was... Charles Starkweather. Now, in 1957, the two had met, and Starkweather had just dropped out of school. It was his senior year, but he was like, forget about it. And he began working at a newspaper facility instead. Forget? Forget. Forget about about it. it. (laughs) Um, The two bonded, and after school, they would have after-school adventures, and Starkweather uh, even decided to take a warehouse job near Carroll School so that they could meet up after. Very innocent in the beginning. Now, being so much older, Starkweather taught Carol Ann a lot, like how to drive. And the problem with this was the car that he taught her to drive in was his father's. And during one of their lessons, she crashed the car and his father promptly kicked him out of the house. Oh no. So this is where the spiral begins. After being kicked out, he lived on his own and began working as a garbage collector. And he used this job to scope out houses that he wanted to potentially burgle. Although there were no reports of him actually doing this, he kind of said that's why he took the job in the first place. Uh, Starkweather began to become even more nihilistic and was quoted as saying, the more I look at people, the more I hate them. 
That is very <laughs> much like a I'm 14 and this is deep yes. sentiment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So Starkweather began his killing spree on November 30th, 1957. They stopped at a gas station and while inside decided to buy Carol Ann a stuffed animal, which apparently was a thing. That's cute, (laughs) I guess. Um, When he went to check out, he realized he was short a few cents and he asked if he could just like put the rest on credit and come back tomorrow with it. The cashier refused, obviously. Of course. And then kicked him out. So Starkweather took this very personally, as if the cashier was making fun of him. And so he returned the following day, and when he entered the gas station the first time, he kind of like had a little bit of a freak out. He was like, um, okay, I'm going to buy a pack of cigarettes. And then he walked out. And then he came back five minutes later, and then he bought a pack of gum. So kind of like testing it a little bit, I guess. Okay. The third time, he entered with a bandana tied around his face and a gun. Oh, very, like, holding up a train. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, He held the gun up to Robert Colvert and had uh, him empty the safe, the register. He then forced Colvert outside and into his car, and then he drove Colvert out to a remote area and shot him dead. Now, when he returned to Carol, he told her he had robbed and injured the man, so he kind of lied. And shortly after this, he lost his job as the garbage collector, had a notice for eviction... And this is when escalation began to build even further. So the picture on the left here is where our next crime is going to take place. On January 21st, 1958, it was reported that Starkweather went to Carol Ann's home to announce to their parents that they had planned to elope. This visit is still debated on as what would happen next seemed to be very planned. Starkweather had with him a loaded rifle and arrived when Carol Ann was not at home. When she did return, she came into both her parents shot dead and her younger sister strangled. Okay. That is one way to be like, I love you. Let's go. Yeah. Yikes. Um, It was not confirmed if Carol Ann actually knew that Starkweather had intended to do all of this. But nonetheless, she assisted with moving the bodies out back of the house to this lovely sort of garage shack area. And then they put a note on the door that said the family was in quarantine due to the flu. Totally legit. Okay. (laughs) I know. That's not sketch, I guess. A few days went by, and then Fugate's grandmother began to become suspicious, and so she alerted law enforcement. Um, But by this time, the couple was on their way to Barnett, Nebraska, to a family friend's house. It was unclear why they visited this man, um, August Meyer. He was 70 years old. He was just a friend of Carol Ann's stepfather. Um, Didn't really know her too well, but they arrived. He let them in, and then they shot him dead before leaving abruptly, and then they decided to hitchhike. Oh, okay. Totally a good idea. (laughs) I guess. I feel like this is a very, like, fast escalation to just literally, like, kind of testing the waters on trying to do some crime and then straight up murder. Yeah. Zero to ten, definitely. My assumption was that they were looking for money from this gentleman. Okay. um, And then a further way to escape out of the state. Now, they hitchhiked and two teenagers picked them up, uh, Robert Jensen and Carol King. Uh, the two were in the back seat when Starkweather pulled a gun and forced Jensen to drive to a storm shelter. While uh, there, he shot Jensen, and then what happens next with Carol King is also up for debate. 
One report was that Starkweather attempted to force himself on her, and then in a fit of jealousy, Carol Ann shot her. Okay. The other story was that Starkweather attempted to force himself on her, could not do it, and then killed her in a fit of humiliation. That seems more likely to me. That also seems more likely to me. Um, The parents of Jensen and King reported them missing, uh, and then the authorities found this car, and Starkweather kind of was in a little bit of a pickle. He got the car stuck in the mud, and so they were like, peace out, and then left (laughs) the bodies in the car. Oh, my God. They were just like, I'm done. I tried too hard. Wow. So uh, Starkweather had taken Jensen's vehicle, and the two had made their way to a more affluent area to wreak havoc. Um, you can go ahead and hit the next okay. one. Okay. Um, they arrived at the home of industrialist Seelor Ward, where he stabbed the wife Clara and their maid Lillian Fensel. Um, then they lied in wait in the house until Ward arrived home. They stole his 1956 Packard as well as the jewelry and then fled the state. By this time, their faces were all over the news, so they began to make their way to Wyoming. Um, the mayor of Lincoln was kind of upset about the lack of investigation that was happening. And so he offered a reward of $1,000. Okay. Uh, Then the FBI and the National Guard were called into the area, which is kind of a big to-do. That doesn't really happen too much, uh, especially not in Nebraska. No. Um, They even started doing house-by-house searches, uh, which is also something not really normal in an investigation like this. Um, And then along the highway outside of Douglas, Wyoming... The couple killed traveling salesman Merle Collison, who was sleeping in his Buick, and this would ultimately be their demise. So this is all of the victims that they had in their killing spree. And it sounds to me really like Starkweather was more the aggressor in all of these. Was Carol just like along for the ride? Well, that will be a big debate later on. Okay. All right. (laughs) So the fancy new Buick had a bit of a newfangled thing called a parking brake. (laughs) Um, something that Starkweather was not used to using. In fact, he couldn't get the thing to disengage. So the two had to pull over. I don't know if you've ever tried to drive with a parking brake on. Doesn't go very well. No. (laughs) So being the 1950s, a passerby pulled over and was like, let me help you, stranded motorist. And instead of being like, thank you, uh, Starkweather pulled out a knife and told him to scram. Um... Classic James Dean style. I feel like it would have been much less suspicious if they would have just been like, oh, thanks. We needed help. (laughs) And an even weirder twist. While he was pulling a knife on this man, a sheriff pulled by. Oh, my God. (laughs) He saw the commotion and pulled over. And the sheriff called for backup and then approached the two. Now, Carol Ann came running out of the car saying Starkweather killed someone. And he made a run for it with the car, took off. After a chase and some shooting between the two, um, they finally caught up to him and they shot into Starkweather's vehicle. The shot into the vehicle was close enough to shatter the windshield, forcing glass all over him, cutting his ear open. He started bleeding. Um, He thought he was mortally wounded, so he pulled over. Okay, (laughs) well. This glass cut my ear. And they just pulled over. He He just gave up. Um, Both were arrested and taken back to Nebraska. Now, this is where it starts to get very confusing. Okay. So, the two stories started to diverge and change wildly as they started to talk with police. First, Starkweather said he forced Carol. 
Then he stated that, he, that she was a willing accomplice and even participated in shooting some of the victims. Now, Fugate stated she was a hostage and only did things in fear um, because she thought she was going to be killed. Now, the trial began in 1958, uh, January, and lasted until May. And there was all kinds of salacious newspaper article headings. They were just, I mean, like this one, for instance, Punk's bloodstained string ends, like... Just really, yeah. really uh, interesting. I feel like when this. you're talking about like, like people, like people who kill as couples, right? Mm-hmm. People in love that murder. This is the two things that you just mentioned. The changing of stories and these salacious headlines are so common, especially yes. around this time mm-hmm. when it was like all tabloids. They would just, no matter who you were, vilify you in the press for oh, yeah. every little thing. They definitely called him like the poor man's James Dean a lot too, which I thought was pretty hilarious. Um, <laughs> and then newspapers kind of took oppositional sides in the portraying of Carol Ann. Some thought she was just this innocent teenager and others thought she was like some bloodthirsty monster. So uh, the two were tried separately and Starkweather even tested testified against Fugate. Um, she maintained her innocence the entire time, but the jury did find Starkweather guilty. Um, however, he was only convicted of the murder of Jensen. So, a okay. little bit of an issue with some of the um, kind of police work, we'll say. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? Yeah. <laughs> so, on May 23rd, 1958, he was sentenced to death. And Starkweather was executed in the electric chair at the Nebraska State Penitentiary in Lincoln, Nebraska at 12.04 a.m. on June 25th, 1959. Now, he stated before he died that if he was to be executed, then so should Fugate. Fair. Now, Fugate's trial went a bit differently. She claimed innocence, but the judge stated during the proceedings that she had plenty of opportunities to run away, to escape. Um, but she didn't. And Fugate was convicted as an accomplice um, and received a life sentence on November 21st, 1958. So there's a lot of um, kind of like one-on-one interviews with her. That picture that she has where she's alone on the bed was one of the ones that was taken um, from an interview. So they really portrayed her a lot as this kind of like innocent damsel in distress. But then when you are reading some of the court proceedings, people really had it in their minds that she was definitely guilty, 100%. Yeah. So every year, Carol Ann would apply for parole, and during this time, there was actually a film being put together, um, and it was called The Badlands, uh, featuring Sissy Spacek and Martin Sheen, and it's kind of loosely based on the couple. The director actually consulted with Fugate and even had her come to the set and sign paperwork so that they could avoid liability issues. Oh, my God. (laughs) So that's actually a picture of her in that lilac dress on set talking to Martin (laughs) Sheen. You know, I have have some feelings (laughs) about... people who are producing media based on these crimes, like getting directly involved with the people who committed them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this definitely calls into question the idea of people profiting off of their crimes, which is like not so great, Mm -hmm. especially if it's murder. Well, she didn't profit. (laughs) She just got to meet a movie star. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Questionable, I would say. Yeah. It also acted, the movie actually upset her because if you've ever seen it, um, 
Sissy Spacek's character, which is loosely based on her, um, you know, Fugate reported that upon seeing, like, Martin Sheen's performance spot on, definitely was Charles. But then when she watched Spacek's character, she said it made her look like a psychopath, and that's not at all what happened. Yikes. So. Oops. <laughs> um, un- unfortunately, she didn't stay in jail, Vicky. <laughs> oh, okay. So in 1976, Fugate was paroled at last, um, and the board stated that she was actually a model prisoner. She cooperated. She did all the things she was supposed to do. Didn't get into fights. Um, also, it was the 70s. They were kind of letting people out left and right. <laughs> Um, And after her release, Fugate became a janitor and married Frederick Clare in 2007. Okay. In 2019, Fugate approached the state of Nebraska for a pardon. It was a big thing happening around then. Lots of pardons flying left and right. Um, She was denied a pardon by the Nebraska Parole Board in February of 2020. Good choice. Um, They were like, that's a hard no. (laughs) Um, I think she actually have pictures of the the, um, families came to talk during this, and they were like, she doesn't deserve this. Yeah. Um, so they definitely uh, listened to her. And she's still alive and kicking uh, around the Midwest. Oh, great. That makes me so, feel So um, if you run into a Carol Ann Claire, that's actually Carol Ann Fugate. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. Well, with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thank you for that. Yes. <laughs> that was a ride. Mm-hmm. Um, well... To, to follow along with our theme today, I will be delving, in, delving into, I took a... Oh, you also did? I took your hint. Same thing. Yes. Okay. Um, I followed your lead on that. Um, so Love I, is here. I will be... It makes every picture look more loving if you right? add hearts you to the corners. You don't even know that they're about to kill someone. No. <laughs> these don't look like murderers at all. Well, he kind of does. Um, <laughs> so I will be delving into the story of Lonely Hearts killers, Raymond Fernandez and Martha Beck. Oh, my gosh. I love a good Lonely Hearts ad. <laughs> yes. Um, and I mean, at the time, like in the 40s, that, that, that was so popular. We'll talk about it later for sure. But our story Starts with a man named Raymond Fernandez. Um, He was born in 1914 in Hawaii to Spanish immigrant parents. At the age of three, uh, he and his family moved to Connecticut, where he spent the rest of his childhood. In his teenage years, Fernandez traveled to Spain to work on his uncle's farm for a while. It was in La Liana, Spain. Um, And during his time in Spain, he met and married a local woman named Encarnacion Robles. And the two had four children. It's reported that during World War II, Fernandez served in both Spain's Merchant Marine and had a short stint with the British Intelligence Agency. And upon returning home, decided to leave for America to find work, um, aiming to eventually send back for his family to join him. 
So Fernandez hitched a ride on a freighter in hopes of a better life, but before he even arrived, um, Fernandez was involved in a terrible accident. So from Crime Library, quote, as he attempted to come up to the deck, an open steel hatch cover fell directly on top of his head. Uh The injury caused a severe indentation on his skull and may have damaged his brain in an irreversible way. Uh Uh-oh. Red flag, red flag. Red flag number one. (laughs) Upon landing in the U.S., Fernandez was placed in the hospital for three months until March 1946. And by the time he left, there were reports that his personality had drastically changed. He was this kind of really polite, meek man. Um, And after he had been hit in the head, he changed to having quick bouts of anger, was really moody. Um, So following his release, Fernandez made his way to Alabama where he was caught in customs after stealing clothes and other items from a, the ship that he had traveled over on, which earned him one year in the federal penitentiary. Hmm. So Fernandez gets sent to prison. Now, Janelle, if there was one skill that you thought you would pick up from a stint in prison, what would it be? Lying better? I don't know. <laughs> Wrong. It's voodoo. <laughs> Totally. So in Alabama? Yes. Uh, <laughs> so while in prison, Fernandez claims that he learned voodoo and black magic from a Haitian cellmate, um, something that he would continue to practice following his release. But learning voodoo was not enough for this man. No, no. Um, he also claimed that he had a secret power over women, thanks to the practice. Um, Again, from Crime Library, quote, Fernandez told friends he could make love with women from great distances by by placing placing (laughs) voodoo powders inside envelopes. In his letters, he asked his victims to send a lock of their hair, an earring, or some personal item that he could utilize in voodoo rituals to strengthen his supernatural control. Unsuspecting women, he believed, then fell at his feet, consumed by the erotic sexual persuasion of Raymond Fernandez, voodoo hoongan. That is giving me straight up <laughs> Alistair Crowley vibes. Yes, yes, very much so. They're like voodoo, black magic, sex. That's all we care about. <laughs> So in 1946, Fernandez was released from prison and promptly moved to Brooklyn, where his sister lived. Uh, It was there he began sending dozens of letters to women in these Lonely Hearts clubs. Um, However, it wasn't love that Fernandez was after. It was money. I definitely wasn't expecting that. (laughs) Did you think it was just sex? Yes. Yeah. It was money. Um, often he would seduce the women, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like a bonus to that's, all of this that's what thing. You I think do really to get that sweet, sweet green. <laughs> uh, he would seduce the woman, steal money, jewelry, checks, anything he could find, and then disappear forever. The women, of course, far too embarrassed from being swindled, they would never report the crimes, and then Fernandez would move on to the next victim. Fernandez was often corresponding with multiple women at the same time. One, a woman named Jane Lucilla Thompson, began writing to Fernandez after she had separated from her husband, leaving her in a really lonely and vulnerable state. After a number of letters, the two finally decided to meet in 1947. They purchased cruise ship tickets and traveled to Spain using Jane Thompson's money, of course. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. After traveling to Spain... Uh, for several weeks, which, if we remember, was where Fernandez is from, 
Um, Fernandez and Thompson eventually made their way to La Linea, where his first wife, Encarnacion, lived with their kids. (laughs) Interestingly, he chose to introduce his first wife to his current lover, and they really hit it off. Uh, The trio spent time going to dinners together. Mm -hmm. Things appeared to be going well. But on November 7th, 1947, something happened between the two women, leading to a fight between Fernandez and Thompson, ending with Fernandez rushing out of the hotel in the middle of the night. The next morning, Jane Thompson was found dead in her room. Uh, Her body was taken and buried without being given an autopsy. uh, And the cause of death was never determined. But... After some suspicion, she may have been poisoned. An effort to exhume Thompson's body was started, but not before Fernandez, abandoning his wife for a second time, fled on the first boat he could catch to New York. So he pieces out of Spain again. He couldn't handle that thruple life. You would think so. <laughs> Hold on to your pants, because you might I change your mind. On, Okay, um, New York. At some point, Fernandez forged a last will and testament in Jane Thompson's name, and when he returned to New York City, claimed her apartment as his own, despite Thompson's elderly mother living there. He just, like, kicked her out and took over the apartment. This entire time, Fernandez was continually... Uh, corresponding with multiple women via these Lonely Hearts Club's ads. Um, One of them was a woman named Martha Seabrook Beck. Now let's talk about Ms. Beck for a second. Um, She was born in 1919 in Northwest Florida, had a rough start to life. She suffered from a glandular condition that caused her to mature a lot faster than regular children. So by the time she was 10, Beck had the body of a woman, Um, like a full-grown woman. That's not a problem. Not a problem at all in early 1900s. Um, However, this also meant she wasn't a small woman. She was often ridiculed for her size. Uh, The harassment didn't stay at school, however, and Beck often faced the same uh, commentary from her mother when she was at home. Later, Beck alleged that she had been sexually assaulted by her brother at an early age, Um, Again, from Crime Library, quote, when she told her mother about the incident, she blamed Martha and beat her. Wherever she went thereafter, her mother followed her. If a boy showed any interest in Martha, her mother was sure to chase the boy away with a barrage of insults and threats. This continued into Beck's teenage years, which made her childhood incredibly lonely. So you can only imagine how this woman was kind of set up for her adult years, um, going into it extremely lonely. Now, Beck went on to nursing school in Pensacola, Florida, eventually graduating in 1942. However, in a classic example of 1940s misogyny, Beck wasn't able to find employment as a nurse due to her appearance. Because that was a thing. Yes, it's a prerequisite. You have to be beautiful. (laughs) Um, So she was forced to take uh, take work with a local mortician preparing female bodies for burial. Now, later in 1942, Beck relocated to California, where she started working at an army hospital for a while, and she was, like, frequenting bars at nights where she would meet servicemen on leave, occasionally taking some home for sex. Um, One of these encounters found Beck pregnant, and the soldier responsible did not want anything to do with this child, going so far as attempting suicide by throwing himself into the bay. 
Beck was unable to persuade the man to marry or take responsibility for the pregnancy and, ashamed and embarrassed, moved back to Florida. Of course, she still needed to explain the pregnancy to everybody back home, and so she concocted this story about a Navy officer that she had married while she was in California, told everybody that he had been deployed, went as far as buying a wedding ring, wearing it around, and dutifully waiting for her husband to return. She even arranged for a telegram to be sent announcing her husband's death while in the service, complete with widow hysterics upon hearing the news. In 1944, Beck gave birth to her daughter, and a few months later, she met a bus driver named Alfred Beck and became pregnant a second time. Now, this time, uh, the two did decide to marry, but it would only last six months before the two got divorced. So now, a single mother of two in the 1940s, um, she spent a lot of her time at home getting into romance novels and watching afternoon movies, dreaming of her Prince Charming coming in to sweep her off her feet. Beck eventually found employment again at the Pensacola Children's Hospital, marking her return to nursing, but she continued to pine after her perfect man. Um, as the result of a practical joke played by a coworker, Martha received an ad in the mail to join a Lonely Hearts Club. Now, when she read the ad, she broke down into bitter tears. But in an act of defiance, Martha placed an ad in Mother Deneen's Family Club for Lonely Hearts. She had to fill out a form describing herself and send it into the publication, but she conveniently left out the fact that she weighed nearly 250 pounds and already had two kids. After this, she just waited to receive the letter that would change her life forever. Now, this day came just before Christmas Day in 1947 when Beck received her first and only reply from a man named Raymond Fernandez. He said he lived in New York City, making a fortune in the import and export industry. Oh, that's classic. (laughs) That could mean a lot of things. Yeah. Um, Even more so since he wasn't doing any of that. (laughs) And so the two began a two-week exchange of letters, each of them kind of stretching the truth in their own way. Beck, not wanting to scare away a prospective partner with her appearance, made an effort to only send group photos where most of her body was completely covered by like people standing in front of her saying, you know, this isn't like the best picture of me. These pictures don't do me justice. You know, they're group pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, But of course, she didn't know that her appearance literally did not matter to Fernandez, who really just wanted Beck for her money. Uh, Knowing she was a nurse, Fernandez assumed that she had some like valuable assets or like a house that uh, he could somehow swindle from her. Um, By this time, he had swindled multiple women and had put together sort of a routine. And when the time was right, Fernandez requested a lock of her hair for voodoo ritual ritual to make her unable to resist his sexual charm, of course. I don't think she has trouble resisting. (laughs) She enthusiastically complied, seeing this as a, like, grand romantic gesture. Like, he wants a lock of my hair. That's so sweet. Douse the letter in perfume. Like, the whole nine yards. Her dreams, in her mind, her dreams had finally come true. Now, after weeks of correspondence, Fernandez traveled to Florida to meet Beck, 
Of course, Beck was concerned about revealing her true appearance, but Fernandez didn't seem phased by it when the two finally met. They both returned to Beck's home, where she introduced Fernandez to her two children, which was another surprise. (laughs) Uh, But, of course, this didn't matter either. Fernandez was really in town to assess Beck's assets and see what he could swindle out of this woman. Now, over the next couple of days, the couple spent most of the time together having sex, all the while Fernandez hoped to glean information about Beck's assets. Um, Beck, infatuated with Fernandez, proclaimed her love, pleaded with him to remain in Florida, but soon Fernandez claimed he had business back in New York and he needed to return, but said he would either come back to Florida or send for her to join him in New York. Beck took this as a proposal um, and told the town that she was going to get married. They even planned her a wedding shower. Um, (laughs) And on the day of her wedding shower, Beck received a letter from Fernandez saying she had his feelings had been completely misunderstood. He wasn't going to be coming back. Um, Kind of, you got the wrong impression. We're not getting married. And of course, Beck was devastated. She attempted to kill herself later convincing Fernandez to let her visit him in New York, where she stayed for two weeks. Now, upon returning to Florida, Beck was fired from her job at the Children's Hospital with no explanation. So she took her last paycheck, picked up her kids, and decided to head out to New York to be with her one true love, Fernandez. That sounds like a solid plan. Yes. Uh, Beck was not happy. (laughs) This woman shows up in January 1948. She shows up on his doorstep with her two kids in tow. Um... He wasn't, like, super thrilled to see her, but he also wasn't mad about it either. Um, But because she was, like, a completely doting woman, taking care of the house, tending to his every need. Um, But the children were non-negotiable. And Fernandez insisted that they could not remain with the couple. So deciding that it was the price to pay for his love... Uh, Beck decided to drop her children off at the Salvation Army and abandon them completely. Oh, honey. Yes. <laughs> but it's her one true love. It's not. <laughs> oh, well, she thought it was. Uh, once the kids were gone, Fernandez revealed his entire ploy to Beck, the multiple letters, the theft, the swindling, even about his wife back in Spain. But Beck wasn't scared off. She, like kind of saw it as her duty to help him out in his endeavors like let me help you do these crimes because that's love that is true love (laughs) and so working as a team the two began looking at lonely hearts ads to choose their next victim the first woman was named esther hen from pennsylvania Um, Fernandez and Beck posing as his sister-in-law, and this is going to be a theme throughout. She would always pose as either his sister-in-law or his sister that he just like brought with him to meet all of these single women. We're just really, really close. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So the two of them traveled to Pennsylvania to meet Hen, quickly marrying in a courthouse ceremony that um, is actually their wedding photo in the middle there. Uh, they pretty much immediately when they got into the house tried to swindle this woman and Fernandez demanded that she would sign over her insurance policies and her teacher pension which Hen refused and it wasn't long before Fernandez and Beck disappeared taking a couple hundred dollars in her car 
So they didn't get away with nothing. Um, this was followed quickly by a young woman named Myrtle Young of Arkansas. She also agreed to marry Fernandez, and the two were wed actually in Cook County in 1948. Beck, again, posing as the sister-in-law, was inserting herself into the relationship to ensure that it was never consummated, going as far as sleeping in the same bed as Myrtle, oh, which Myrtle was not like thrilled about. And started complaining to Fernandez, like, why the hell is your sister sleeping in my bed? That's really weird. <laughs> Their solution was a heavy dose of drugs to make her unconscious. And then they put her on a bus back to Arkansas. When she arrived in Arkansas, she was taken off the bus by police, um, was taken to the hospital, and then died in the hospital the following day. In the meantime, Fernandez and Beck fled back to New York, $4,000 richer. Their trip back to New York included a few stops along the way to visit these multiple women that Fernandez had been um, communicating with, but nothing like really seemed super promising in the long term. Now soon, Fernandez and Beck began communicating with 66-year-old Janet Faye from Albany, New York. Faye was a devout Catholic, which was a fact that Fernandez used to his advantages, his advantage by making references to religion and God in all of his letters. Eventually, the two decided to meet, and Fernandez and Beck traveled to Albany to check into a hotel. Over the next few days, Fernandez went to work courting uh, Faye, often being joined for dinner by Beck, again, posing as his sister. In his regular fashion, Fernandez proposed marriage to Faye, who accepted, and they decided to move to Long Island into an apartment that Beck had already rented. Faye, in preparation for the move, began pulling out all of the money from her bank accounts, totaling around $6,000, and the three of them moved into the Long Island apartment. Now, one evening after dinner, Fernandez fell asleep first, leaving the two women alone together. And what happened next is kind of a mishmash of stories. Um, Beck later would give multiple accounts of what happened that night, but she did say, quote, I was just burning up with jealousy and anger. Oh, heavens. (laughs) Uh, Beck also claimed that she had walked into the bedroom and saw Janet naked with her arm around Raymond. Um, And this seemed to be enough of like a buildup of emotions for Beck, who was jealous about the amount of attention that Faye was receiving from her one true love. And whatever truly happened that night, the two women got into an argument that ended with Faye being beaten to death with a ball-peen hammer and garroted with a scarf used as a tourniquet around her neck. Now, later... Um, I don't think I included this in my notes. Later, she would testify that the garrote around the neck was part of her nurse training that kicked in in order to stop blood flow from the head. Totally. Which I don't know. I don't know if anybody in here is a nurse, but I'm just going to say, that, does that work? Or knows any human is that anatomy? Real? <laughs> yeah. If you have a it'll, head injury? It'll stop all kinds of flows. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't, we have the official opinion is do not do this. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. It would stop the blood flow forever, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, now, Black, Beck claimed she blacked out during the whole event, only coming to after the murder happened, uh, which is entirely possible. Like, that is a thing that happens sometimes, especially with these really traumatic events, mm-hmm. but seems a little suspect. Now, after a bit of cleanup, Faye's body was placed into the closet before Fernandez and Beck went to bed. The following day, they put Faye's body into a large trunk, and then they took the trunk to Fernandez's sister's house, his actual sister. 
Uh, <laughs> he has so many. <laughs> yes. Um, they convinced her to store the trunk in her basement where it stayed for 11 days before the couple returned for it, taking the trunk to a rented house where it was buried in the cellar before being covered in cement. In the meantime, Fernandez and Beck spent the week cashing face checks and writing letters to her family to throw off the trail, but they made one error, um, which was sending typed letters because Faye didn't own a typewriter and she didn't know how to type. And so it was immediately apparent to her family that something was wrong and they notified the police. Uh, the, but by this time, the Lonely Hearts couple had moved on to their next victim, heading to Grand Rapids, Michigan, to meet 41-year-old Delphine Downing and her two-year-old child, Raynell. I know. You can see what's coming, and it's very sad. Vicki, you always got to come I'm in with sorry. some downers. <laughs> by this point, Fernandez had assumed the alias Charles Martin for his con, but continued to include Beck as his sister that would be traveling with him. In January 1949, Downing and Fernandez had met and spent time together, um, and Downing seemed to believe that she could see a future with Martin, a.k.a. Fernandez, and the two began having sex. Now, of course, Beck hated this but tried to quietly suffer until the con was over, which was coming sooner than they thought. One morning, Downing walked into the bathroom and discovered Fernandez without his toupee. Um, And of course, he has this giant scar on his head from being hit with the hatch. Um, And so she immediately uh, was accusing him of fraud and deception and all because of a toupee, huh? All because of a t- I I wish that's all it took for Not some his people. Sister coming yeah. in. Sister. Yeah. Um thing he was trying to calm her down by like turning on the Spanish charm, but it wasn't really work. So Beck persuaded Downing to take some sleeping pills. By the time Downing was out, her child, Raynell, had began crying, much to the displeasure of Beck, and in a rage, Beck grabbed the child, choking her into an unconsciousness and leaving obvious bruises. Now, Fernandez knew that when Downing woke up, she would see the bruises and be furious, and they had to come up with another plan. So Fernandez found a handgun, wrapped it in a blanket, and placed it directly against Downing's head, shooting her in the brain and killing her instantly. They then wrapped Downing's body in sheets, moved her to the basement where they buried her. Um, The following two days were spent uh, gathering Downing's money and kind of trying to figure out what they were going to do next, including what to do with Raynell. Ultimately, Fernandez decided that they needed to dispose of the child as well and tasked Beck with filling a metal tub with water and drowning Raynell. Uh, Raynell was buried in the basement next to her mother, And rather than escaping, Fernandez and Beck decided to go to the movies. Yeah, that's fucked up, right? (laughs) That is fucked up. Like you got bodies in your basement. Day they needed to to relax. relax. (laughs) Jesus, yeah. Um. So afterwards, the couple returned to the apartment to pack their bags. When there was a knock at the door, turns out the police had been called by suspicious neighbors. Huh. Fernandez and Beck were arrested on February 28th, 1949, and promptly questioned by authorities. 
Neither party requested an attorney and both seemingly cooperated with the interrogation. The result was a signed 73-page confession in exchange for the assurance from the district attorney that they would not be extradited to New York. Now, they knew that New York had the death penalty and wanted to avoid the electric chair. And Michigan at the time did not have the death penalty. I don't think they do still. Um, Now... We talked about this a little bit earlier. Uh, A story such as theirs filled with sex, fraud, and murder was perfect for the tabloids of the time, who completely vilified Beck in the press. Often, the headlines were a commentary on her appearance or her weight, um, and the fact that she had this Spanish lover only added to the salaciousness of the story that literally everybody wanted to read. Just a week later, New York Governor Thomas Dewey was able to cut a deal with officials in Michigan to have Fernandez and Beck sent to New York. In exchange for waiving the charges in the Downing murder, New York would prosecute the couple for the murder of Janet Fay, specifically because they wanted them to face the electric chair. Classic. Oops, yeah. <laughs> that deal totally worked out. Mm-hmm. Now, the trial began in late June in 1948 and proved to be its own circus to start off with. Fernandez and Beck were given one lawyer to represent both of them. Now, typically, this is an ethics violation. Uh, To have a single attorney represent two defendants due to conflict of interest, you don't want to have to make choices that would benefit one of your clients and not the other. Um, But the judge permitted it in this case because... They knew the outcome. (laughs) 1940s justice system. Yeah, that's Mm true. Um, Fernandez took the stand in his defense, denying any involvement in Janet Faye's murder. Always a bad move. Saying, quote, all my statements were made for the purpose of helping Martha. I love her. It couldn't be anything else. It's love. Fernandez claimed he would take, uh, he would take prison a lot better than a woman would and really played up like the whole white knight thing. Wow, how chivalrous of him. Yeah. <laughs> The entire confession, with all its lurid details, was read into the record, and Beck also took the stand in her own defense, describing her childhood and all of the events during the murder of Janet Faye. She also said of her love of Fernandez, quote, we loved each other, and I consider it absolutely sacred. You referred to the lovemaking as abnormal, but for the love I had for Fernandez, nothing is abnormal. (laughs) Dude, I don't know. Testimony took 44 days, and after just 11 hours of deliberation, the jury found Fernandez and Beck guilty of first-degree murder, and on August 22, 1949, they were sentenced to death in the electric chair. Both were sent to Sing Song Prison, and they were immediately separated. Now... Their stay in prison continued to be this, like, love-hate story that played out in the press. Um, The tabloids were printing that there were rumors that Beck was having a relationship with the guard, and then Fernandez heard about it, and he believed them, and was like, I can't believe my love has done this to me. And it was like, it's all tabloid fodder, really. Um, There were letters going out from both Beck and Fernandez about their relationships and its woes. All the while, Fernandez was still sending letters to his wife back in Spain, who now, knowing everything that had happened, still considered him her husband. Because, fine. It was that voodoo. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
After all the appeals were finalized, their execution date was set for March 8th, 1951. Fernandez and Beck would be the last two executed in a series of four um, executions. It was the first quadruple execution since 1947. Now, just before Fernandez was taken to the chamber, Beck sent him a letter professing her love, to which he said, the news brought to me that Martha loves me is the best I've had in years. Now I'm ready to die. So tonight I'll die like a man. Because <laughs> he's got the love of Martha, I guess. I, it's so he weird. He really did have a head injury. He really did. <laughs> he because really did. It's, it was like all a ploy at first, and then I think he actually loved her. Part of me doesn't know if he did or not. It's. I mean, there's not much difference between psychosis and love in the brain. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> Martha Beck's final words to the press before her own execution were, quote, what does it matter who is to blame? My story is a love story, but only those tortured with love can understand what I mean. I was pictured as a fat, unfeeling woman. I am not unfeeling, stupid, or moronic. In the history of the world, how many crimes have been attributed to love? That is straight out of a romance novel. Uh, <laughs> No kidding, yeah. So um, the the pair were executed, and that's it for their story. <laughs> a wild ride. Yes. One um, honestly, one of my favorite killer couple stories because it is just so all over the place. It is. <laughs> that was mortifying. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, so. That has been our show. Um, if you enjoyed this, you can find more episodes just like this on the Bad Taste Crime Podcast.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter. You can find us on any podcasting platform Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, etc. Um, and I think, is that it? I mean, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> I do want to say thank you to Side Street Studio Arts and Ghostly Podcast for putting this all together. It's great to see so many artists and performers like all in this kind of creepy genre come together. It's like, oh, we feel it's at home. It's our creepy family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. Thank you, guys. Thank you. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We are all evil in some form or another. I'm not guilty. <laughs> the dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. Something if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons.